Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. With me is my usual partner, Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor of Proceedings Magazine. And joining us today is the founder and editor of USNI News, Sam Legrone. Sam, thanks for coming aboard. Hey, gang. Thanks for having me. So big uh, week with the follow-up to uh, the official report on McCain and Fitzgerald. Sam, what are you uh, what are you hearing reverberations wise around that? Well, the incidents that we had in June, the incidents that we had in June and August between the Fitzgerald and uh, the McCain have prompted a big comprehensive review uh, by the Navy of uh, surface forces uh, in general and the forward deployed naval forces in Japan in particular, and the big comprehensive review led by. Um, Admiral Davidson at Fleet Forces came out yesterday, and so, or I'm sorry, uh, last week, last Thursday, uh, that CNO briefed. So we're piecing through the comprehensive review as it stands at the moment, looking for sort of the big substantive changes. But I think um, a lot of people who have been paying close attention to the surface forces uh, in the last 10, 15 years are going to be seeing uh, a lot of familiar patterns as far as uh, ships that, uh, that are crewed by people that are tired. Uh, ships that have um, maybe are oversubscribed, uh, demand, uh, I'm sorry, uh, combatant commander demand that's pretty relentless, and then um, uh, maintenance that has lapsed due to that relentless demand. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the same story uh, again and again and again and again with the surface forces. And so we're looking at how this particular iteration of uh, solutions is going to ultimately affect the surface forces moving forward. So Megan, one of your team members, uh, was down in Norfolk this week, had an audience with uh, with Admiral Davidson. Uh, anything uh, earth-shattering about that? I think, uh, I think, you know, Admiral Davidson's um, mission right now uh, that we, we can garner from what we learned from our trip down there this week is to now communicate uh, the particulars of the intention of this report down to the surface warfare officers. Um, and I think there's going to be a series of all-hands calls uh, throughout the service to make sure that um, kind of those intents are, are known uh, as far as anything um, in particular that uh, Davidson told us, I mean, it's, it's pretty much aligned to what, what you can see in the comprehensive review. Uh, another front, the Fat Leonard uh, front, Washington Post had a story this week that uh, suggested that the net is maybe as wide as we always thought, but it looks like it's getting wider. Um, what's that all about? What's the real story behind that uh, potentially sensational headline? Uh, so, uh, the Washington Post story on Sunday, uh, indicated that there were, um, as many as 60 admirals, uh, that were being looked at, um, unclear whether they were retired or active, um, as of the publication of the, the Post story, uh, as part of the Fat Leonard, uh, investigation or the Glenn Defense Marine Asia, uh, as folks who may or may not have had some involvement, uh, with that company, and the story points out uh, pretty low down in there that uh, just because these people are getting looked at um, doesn't necessarily mean that they might have committed any uh, wrongdoing per se. 
uh, how the nature, how this investigation has worked so far, is a pretty pretty typical to other U.S. Department of Justice investigations, where you find a principal person, and then you put them in a room, and you uh, just start asking them questions, and then they start naming names, and then you go to those names, and those names start naming names, and then those names start naming names, and on and on and on and on and on, and the level of clarity that we've gotten as to who's been talked to and who hasn't been talked to is is murky at best. Uh, so just because your name is on that list doesn't necessarily mean that you've done anything wrong. It could be as simple as I was on my way to this dinner and then I saw this guy on the bus heading the other direction. Uh, so we've understood from the conversations that we've had and some of the work that we've done, or the early work we've done. Uh, and because you were on that bus and that guy named your name, now you're on a list. But who's on the name or who's on the list and who's not on the list um, is difficult to see. And and this has been a frustration for the Navy, um, and it's been expressed uh, kind of several times over the years, especially by uh, uh, former Secretary of the Navy uh, Ray Mavis in testimony has said uh, that this has been a problem for us because you have these guys uh, sort of in this stasis and there's no real – solid end in sight as a resolution to this investigation. So it makes things a little a little complicated when it comes to leadership and how they're, that's going to progress in, in the service if you have folks that are kind of in this in this limbo, right, the Schrodinger's quantum state of uh, am I guilty, am I not guilty, am I implicated, am I not implicated, they're just there. And under the protections and rules and, you know, on and on and on and on, you can advance. Maybe you can't retire. Maybe you can't whatever. And so there's this stasis. There's this. It can't be nominated for a a higher level position, particularly a three-star level position that requires Senate confirmation, right? Because if you're under suspicion or or investigation, that, that holds up all of those positions. You can't be promoted. You can't. Uh, I mean, and we we spoke about Admiral uh, a Branch uh, a few weeks ago on the show, and you know he ultimately was exonerated. Um, but you could say that um, justice wasn't served in terms of how that played out. To your point, implicated just by name and held in purgatory for you know a protracted amount of time, well, and it affects the Navy's readiness, right? I mean, you you've seen talent. Uh, you know, deficits, arguably, and, and guys getting slated for jobs that maybe they're not the uh, the top-shelf guy, potentially. You know, this has effects. Well, I think, um, particularly in the case of uh, Admiral Branch, uh, he, you know, and, and actually to uh, to us, uh, uh, Secretary Mavis uh, talked to us. We, we did break that story on uh, Admiral Branch's exonération. You know, I just, just want to point that out. <laughs> No, we're, uh, <laughs> yes, and this is the place to Sorry, point it out. Uh, Roger. No, that's um, awesome. But uh, but I think um, I think there was a lot of regret for the people that were involved in that decision to um, restrict Admiral Branch's uh, access to um, sensitive information. Um, when we talked to Secretary Mavis, he said it was going to be weeks. You know, they said it was going to be weeks. It was going to clear for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, I'm sorry that that he was going to be cleared in, a, in in a matter of days, but it went on for you know until until he retired Months, years right. years. So the, so the, yeah. years. the director of Na- naval intelligence didn't the director have a, of naval didn't have a security clearance. Did not have access to classified for, for three information years. For, for three, three, years. three years, and and it was kind of a no known, and you started to see 
you know, and then the, I think the general interest press uh, got a hold of it, uh, hold of the story. Well, I mean, I think it was out in a bunch of places, but I mean, there was a big front page story in the Washington Post. Um, and uh, poor Admiral Branch, I think we can say that now that he's been exonerated, was became the poster child uh, for this uh, this scandal of corruption and the implication essentially ended his career at where he was. No, absolutely. Um, not, not, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. that is fact. And, and for the rest of his life, uh, undeservedly, he will be living under this cloud and trying to, you know, clear his, his name of that. And, and his name is now associated with fat Leonard for forever. And, and, and that is part of the structure of these DOJ investigations. I mean, that's usually, you know, there, this is a unique set of circumstances because, um, there, there's not really any mechanisms to deal with an investigation of this scale as it relates to the military. I don't think anyone ever foresaw that in case you had to do an investigation like that, how do you go and ensure that you know your leadership chains are there uh, and then people can uh, move through the ranks because you're looking at these things as maybe as ones or twos, right? And especially not in the military. But now all of these other sort of overlapping second and third order effects have uh, started occurring, and you're just really um, in a difficult position, and no one really has any good answers on how to move forward. And I think the DOJ isn't, you know, their incentive is not to ensure good leadership in the Navy. Their incentive is to prosecute the case to the best of their ability. And so they've got Fat Leonard and whoever else, or Leonard Francis, um, sitting in a room naming as many names as they can and their procedures to go and check um, combined with, you know, the OSD investigative services and the NCIS, uh, you know, they'll, they, they are obviously taking some time. And, you know, and the, the question is there, how much leadership is attriting from the Navy as, as part of these guys or, uh, you know, guys, maybe ladies are being held in this sort of kind of not convicted, but not exonerated state. So it yeah. becomes a difficult question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we can put the who in it in the form of Mike Manazer, right? Uh, he's now with Boeing, um, as you pointed out uh, before the show, Sam. Um, you know, that's the Navy's loss uh, for sure. Well, um, there are all sorts of people who are, you know, are there and, you know, not to not to name any names or be specific about anybody we know or don't know because, um, the levels of um, non-disclosure agreements that everybody signs are pretty clear. So you hear things in dribs and drabs that are unconfirmed, but you start to see a pattern emerging, you know, kind of like a scatter plot of, of trajectories for, or not trajectories, but you see a scatter plot of uh, where people are going and when people are staying and stuff like that. And you start to the, derive patterns of what things are, are, are happening based on you know some moves that you make that you can't specify right so you see somebody go to some place and you're like hmm could be maybe maybe not you're not sure though and because everyone's NDA'd up uh, you never have a clear definitive answer one way or the other so I mean right now we're dealing with who's going to be paycom um, that shakeup um, has second and third order effects and it'll take years to uh to work out another thing that you guys have been on Sam is the uh, the fallout from the hurricanes and the amphids being used as uh, in in the in the relief efforts there and and 
ironically, or maybe not ironically, but uh, one of the things that maybe the audience doesn't think about is this is affecting the first deployment of the F-35 aboard an amphib. Let's talk about that for a second. Sure. Uh, so the USS Wasp is moving um, eventually to get to Japan to be the forward deployed um, amphibious uh, um, uh, warship that will be fielding the F-35B for the first time. So the first deployment, uh, I believe it's VMFA-121. Uh, check me if I'm wrong. No, that's right. Um, Green Knights. The Green Knights. My dad um, was a skipper in the 70s. Oh, I didn't it was an A6 squadron. Yeah. I did not realize. Yeah. Uh, are uh, out in uh, Iwakuni, and they have been, um, that squadron stood up operationally, I want to say sometime last year or early this year. Again, check my math on that. And um, they are going to be the first squadron to deploy with an ARGMU to eventually replace uh, the, the Harriers that are uh, inherent uh, in those units. So the idea is... Um, that they still uh, have to do a bunch of certifications for the WASPs to field those uh, um, Joint Strike Fighters that are out there. And so because of the hurricane response, the WASP has to, you know, is, is going to be pushed back. And so how much it's going to go and affect those deployments is unclear yet. Uh, we haven't got an official word one way or the other, but we're, we're very, very close to um, uh, uh uh, you know, understanding what the next steps are for uh, the WASP, but it's still indeterminate on 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 how much this might affect that uh, deployment, and that's a big deal because you know having that F thirty five and that AOR sends a, a message uh, to potential adversaries of the United States, uh, particularly China, that you know there's an advanced capability in there, and also you want those uh, aircraft out with the fleet as soon as possible because the F-35 brings a lot of really interesting capabilities that the Marines haven't had before, uh, different ISR capabilities that you're going to be able to, you know, employ with uh, with the ARGMU uh, that you didn't have on the Harriers. And so they want to get them out in the fleet, and they want to start doing testing because they can figure out, hey, you know, now that we have this particular capability here, we're going to be able to expand the capability sets of uh, these expeditionary forces and the Marines and the Navy, uh, the folks in the Gator Navy are really interested to get that going uh, as soon as it can. So that, that brings up a point about oversubscribed, and you mentioned it a few minutes ago, Sam, about uh, FDNF ships and the comprehensive review and the the almost insatiable demand signal that combatant commands have had for for Navy ships uh, for the last 20 years, right? And so here's another demand signal, this hurricane relief. Completely legitimate, much-needed mission, uh, bringing relief to uh, Texas and to Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, et cetera. Uh, but at what point does that kind of uh, immediate prompt demand signal, uh, does it offset COCOM, you know, forward-deployed COCOM needs? Uh, you know, and does the Navy get to say no? Does the Navy get to say, okay, we now have to reset for a bit. We need to give WASP some time to get ready uh, because it had to do this other mission. We need to give Kearsarge some more time to get ready because it had other missions. Uh, it, it, so that those those uh, sort of domino effects, right, of one thing leads to another, it's going to be interesting to see out of the comprehensive review, you, you know, how is the Navy going to start to handle maintenance and handle training requirements uh, given the, the insatiable demands that have been on the fleet uh, that have led to where we are now, um, 
And will they be able to? Well, Admiral Richardson said as much in, in his initial testimony after the McCain collusion, which is the Navy has a hard time uh, saying no. And you know, as traditionally, and I don't, I don't know if that's a bad thing, um, I guess insofar as you don't kill people, but um, I, I, a natural disaster like the three hurricanes we had in rapid succession at the end of the summer obviously isn't foreseen. There's no rainbow ship schedule that that bake that into the plan. Um, and it's hard, it would be hard to say, look, we have by doctrine, a COCOM requirement to have a 2.0 presence or something in that theater. So we can't help you, Puerto Rico. That's the wrong answer, right? Absolutely. Um, and right. so here we are. And I think what we have to, to figure out is can we gap coverage in an AOR for a quarter or some amount of time so that they can have some downtime and meet whatever the uh, required op tempo pers tempo balances and get you know up to speed because otherwise what happens is what we've seen in seventh fleet that's one of the takeaways right i think i i think there's a lot of questions that are raised in particular um in light of uh, the FDNF ships, and in, in light of the humanitarian aid and disaster relief missions, um, they just all happen to happen coincidentally, like one right on top of each other. Uh, which is, you know, what are ultimately how much of these uh, issues are going to be able uh, to allow the Navy to take a step back and say, hey, maybe we need to reevaluate sort of what our level of commitment is. Um, you know, we uh, we had a longer piece that we ran last week when we looked into. Um, the, the history of some of the FDNF forces, uh, the surface maintenance issues, and some of the manning issues. I mean, and none of this is new. Uh, and I think you could see, you could probably pick out phrases in the comprehensive review that probably were in the Belial report and, you know, several other evaluations ahead of time. And so ultimately, the, the question is, is what can you really sustain? And uh, we had a nice conversation with uh, former uh, Undersecretary of the Navy and Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Bob Work, and he said, Look, how what do you value here? Do you how much do that present mission do you value, um, and is it really that that necessary to be able to do that if you know that you have a smaller, more capable force that can go and mess you up if you step out of line? How is that a more effective deterrent than having people out there in presence all the time in a less ready state? And, you know, the conversation about, you know, gun deck and readiness reports keeps coming up and coming up and coming up and coming up. And the Navy isn't explicitly saying that it's happening. But, you know, if you start to look at the margins, you, you start to assemble some pretty difficult questions when it comes to uh, these are the realities as far as we go. It's funny. We were um, – uh, we we wrote a story earlier this week about uh, just it, it's mostly coincidental, but there are seven carriers underway right now for the first time in uh, probably four or five years, maybe 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 longer than that. You know, some of them are in uh, deployed, some of them are in uh, maintenance avail or training availabilities, some of them are you know uh, doing exercises, but you know they all happen to be seven carriers at all at the same time. Uh, and the last time that. Um, that reminded us about this uh, exercise in 2004 called Summer Pulse 04. And uh, that was in the early days of the fleet response plan. And uh, there were seven carrier strike groups. They were out all at once. And uh, there's there's some legend around that, that, you know, being able to see that that early in the global war on terror, 
being able to see that you're able to, to sortie that many forces all at once maybe started to put some unrealistic expectations into the combatant commander's heads that, well, if you're able to have all of this readiness and it's all on the shelf, why are we leaving it on the shelf? Why aren't we using it? Um, and the other conversations you start to have there, um, and that's something that we're probably going to talk about a little bit more in the future, is w what about the strategic aspect of this, right? Look at the submarine community. The submarine community, uh, every single submarine that comes out, you know how many deployments it's going to do. You have a very, very keen eye on the maintenance uh, that's going to be required to go and make those deployments. And your timing, for the most part, is pretty good. You're running into problems now. But for the history of the submarine force, it's like, this is what we can give you. This is what you get. And then you have to work around that. And I think a lot of the people that we've talked to uh, it, are, are saying that, like, hey, uh, it's, it's like the old... Um, it's like the old saw where people are like, hey, we've run out of money. It's time to think. You know, it's, hey, we've run out of ships. Maybe we need to go and uh, assemble a strategy so that could correspond to the uh, get the effects that we want for what we have. And that's, uh, I mean, it's not me saying that. It's like several people that we've talked to, like up and down uh, when we're looking into this problem. Because, again, you know, it comes down to like everyone knows it's a problem. Everyone will admit that it's a problem, but when it comes to sort of, you know, digging out to what the actual solution is going to be, I think that's when it becomes a harder issue to, uh, to to tabulate one way or the other. Well, your point about the 2004 surge uh, exercise of you know getting seven carriers underway reminds me that about that same time, a year or two later, 2006, seven, when. Uh, the Army and the Marine Corps started to really get ground up in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's about the time that then CNO Admiral Mullen uh, made the decision that we were going to start sending Navy people, pulling Navy people out of ships and squadrons uh, and deploying them on uh, uh, IAs, you know, inter individual, yeah, individual augmentation, right, to Army units or to Marine Corps units in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I remember being on sea duty at that time, 2006 to 8, uh, Carrier Strike Group 4. We were evaluating and training all the East Coast Carrier Strike Groups, uh, Expeditionary Strike Groups, and we were dealing with uh, having a problem as we're getting ready to evaluate uh, in COM2X and in JTF exercises these ships that weren't fully manned because they had 10, 20 percent of their crew on IAs in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that was eating up people and starting to lead to this training deficit, starting to lead to some of the problems that, you know, have manifested themselves over, as you said, this is not new. These are problems that took a decade or so to, to arise. Uh, but when you pull people out and you send them on individual augmentations, the you know the idea behind that is very noble, right? We're going to help out our joint service brethren because they're losing people, uh, and we're going to help out. Uh, but at the same time, trying to maintain the readiness and the training level for the crew as a cohesive unit on a ship or in a squadron, when 20% of your people aren't there to start the uh, the training cycle, you know that that leads to problems. It's it's very difficult. Well, Sam, I know you got to get back to work, um, but just one last question about the budget. So. Since um, the Trump administration has been in office, there's been a lot of uh, sort of claims about we, we rebuilt the military. At your level, are, are, are you seeing any, you know, I know there's a desire to have a 355-ship Navy, um, but are you seeing anything at the budgetary level or at the program office level where it looks like happy days are here again, or is this all just sort of uh, 
talk. Well, it all starts with talk word. Um, so just to uh, get that out there. So um, it, <laughs> thank the, you for getting that out there. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, the if you look at if you look at uh, what the president's budget proposal was uh, when it when it came out um, earlier this year, uh, it was a quote readiness budget. And the readiness budget was to plug in holes in operation and maintenance accounts. And so when you look at the individual um, SCN line or the shipbuilding conversion something, um, you see essentially a flat uh, expenditure for ships. And the you don't typically you get a five-year projection. Of, uh, they, they call it the future year's defense plan. And you get a five-year projection out from uh, the current year uh, to give you an idea of sort of trajectories. But that was not inherent this year so there really isn't an expressed plan and what you saw in terms of shipbuilding looked very similar to what the five-year projected plan was for the obama administration the last obama administration budget so um i think the rhetoric is there but the actual language to go and manifest that into a cohesive um push from the Pentagon uh, and and the Navy, but particularly the Pentagon and the administration to go and actually construct those ships hasn't appeared yet. Um, and based on that, I think you'll see that the shipyards haven't quite prepared themselves to be able to go and do that. I think they're eagerly anticipating signals to see that. Uh, but I think you're going to see we'll have to wait until February when the next, you know, the FY19 budget comes out to see what those sort of plans are. You know, the Pentagon's working on a national strategy now, uh, and that's going to inform a lot of these expenditures. But, you know, the Navy's still up there saying that 355 is the number that we need to go and perform all of these missions. So, but the plan how to get there hasn't quite broke cover yet. Well, you also had a USNI News report yesterday or or earlier today about uh, Vice Admiral Johnson uh, talking about submarine construction and about how we're not really going to, the Navy's not going to talk about adding more submarines to the construction plan until the yards and the the, uh, the, the capacity is shown that we can actually build uh, Virginia-class boats on a strict five-year plan, that they can meet that consistently, and then maybe we can talk about you know adding more bo- uh, boats to the plan. Yeah, I mean that's a real concern of the Navy. Um, so you're you're gonna the the goal is to get. I think a goal is for a lot of manufacturers and a lot of you know sort of elected representatives in those districts is to get to three um, attack boats a year, um, split between the yard at the electric boat up in Connecticut and uh, HII's yard down in Newport News down in Virginia. Um, the Admiral Johnson was pretty clear. It was like, hey, we'll talk about three a year when you guys can, you know, hit that hit that number. Um, and then that's that's still kind of an open question on how that goes. I mean, the Virginia program in particular was the the kind of the golden shipbuilding program uh, in the United States Navy for a very long time. Uh, but they're starting to see some hiccups lately in their latest iterations. And so, you know, as to why that is, I mean, it's, it's still to be determined. But uh, hitting that number... Um, I, I think Admiral Johnson thinks that's a that's a pretty reasonable thing to do before we start talking about like you know upping the uh, uh, attack boat production rate. So that's a that's a thing to watch pretty closely. 
So, Sam, thanks for coming by the show. We hope to have you on as a as a regular guest. Uh, I know you have to get back to work, and we uh, encourage uh, the listeners to uh, you know follow Sam on Twitter, like him on Facebook. Um, not Sam, but USNI News and Sam sure. too. Uh, but also, if you don't get the USNI News newsletter each morning, then you're missing out. Um, because Sam and his team on a daily basis are breaking stories of great import and very relevant to uh, to our mission. So thanks for coming by, Sam. Thanks, Gay. All right. Um, so, Bill, last week uh, we had promised uh, the listeners that we would look at a few other articles from this current issue of Proceedings, which is a fantastic issue. And one I wanted to talk about um, was what – you might call the final word on whether females can fight or not. Now, you remember that there was quite a kerfuffle covered by proceedings a few months ago when Jim Webb was uh, nominated uh, to be a distinguished graduate of the uh, U.S. Naval Academy. And um, I remember when I was a plebe, the article in The Washingtonian came out called Women Can't Fight caused quite a lot of, of heartache. Um, at that time, um, my class were the third, uh, was the third class with female midshipmen, and it was a, you know, not quite tenuous, but it still hadn't been established um, whether this experiment, if you will, uh, w- was going to work. Um, people were figuring it out on their own. And what people don't realize now and, and even maybe female midshipmen don't realize right now is the pioneers that were the classes of 80, 81, and 82, um, and, and 83, um, really were operating without a playbook and a net. The Navy was wholly unprepared, maybe you even say recklessly unprepared, for female integration at the Naval Academy. So, you know, the courage of those early class females to to pursue their dreams um, cannot be overstated and when that article hit it was a body blow of great consequence so to two women who are already there yes and so their reaction to the idea that Jim Webb would be a distinguished graduate was wholly expected and arguably appropriate right so in this month's proceedings um let me find the article. Um, yeah, you're talking about the uh, piece by Susanna Brugler, I think it yes. is. Uh, she's a warrior, uh, uh, it's called. I think uh, Susanna was a Naval Academy graduate from somewhere class of 97 or so. Yeah, hold on, um, I'll find it. Uh, but she points out, she, she essentially is talking a bit about that uh, distinguished graduate um, uh, kerfuffle, as you called it, uh, over Jim Webb uh, earlier this year. Um, going back again to that piece that he wrote in the Washingtonian in 1979. Um, and, you know, and she's pointing out now we have a history of 30-odd years, 35, 37 years of women graduates from the academy and, and points out some of the pretty incredible things that they've done and continue to do uh, in combat, uh, you know, in command of ships. Um, the picture there is a, a picture of the commanding officer, um, I forget the name, uh, Commander. Yeah, Andrea Slau uh, of the Porter, one of two destroyers that launched cruise missiles to Syrian uh, Mary, uh, military airfield in April of this year. Um, so 
yeah, she says um, her 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 bottom line thought here is uh, toward the end where she says, and I'll read it here. In in women can't fight. Webb ignored the fact that women could be warriors. He overlooked the idea that women would be capable of developing into combat leaders in the future. In justifying the $100,000 taxpayer price tag of putting a midshipman through four years of the Naval Academy, today, according to a recent GAA report, the cost has nearly tripled. Webb wrote, they, which is to say the American taxpayers, are buying combat leaders, men with a sense of country who have developed such intangibles as force, clarity of thought, and the ability to lead by example, who have lived under stress for years and are capable of functioning under intense pressure. And she says here, he perfectly describes my brothers and sisters in arms. 20 years later, my 98 classmates. Um, so a fantastic article um, in a fantastic issue. And I, I, I think I, it, it, I would call this the final word on, on, the, on the subject there, right? Um, another cool article uh, in this issue is um, one we didn't talk about, which is this one about fixing officer retention. Let's talk about that one for a second. Right, so uh, Lieutenant Jeremy Capallo, who was the flag aide to Commander Naval Air Forces, um, the Air Boss. Uh, who we ran into we, in the Pentagon when we interviewed Admiral Shoemaker a few months ago. Yeah, back in July. And uh, Jeremy, his call sign's Torso. Uh, he's a uh, helicopter pilot, uh, H-60 pilot. And um, he uh, just basically, the main points of his piece are that uh, the Navy is not retaining right now the very best uh, officers or some of the very best officers are, are leaving. And he sees it in the aviation community uh, particularly, but it's also per pertinent to, to the rest of the Navy. Um, and for s several reasons, uh, one of them is the biggest one, he says, is time. That uh, the, the time away from family, time out of the cockpit or, or out of, you know, not at sea, not doing what you signed up to do. Administrivia. Yeah, uh, yeah right? time doing a lot of administrivia, um, that, that that's driving people out. And he recommends some tweaks to the aviation uh, continuation and command pay. Um, he recommends some tweaks to, uh, you know, the, the selection process for getting the right people, getting the best people. He recommends... Um, reinvigorating or invigorating the um, the career uh, intermission program, so allowing people to take a couple years off, um, uh, sabbatical, if you will, uh, to start a family, pursue a, a graduate education if you want to do something outside the Navy, um, or, or maybe you just burnt out, right? Maybe you've gotten to the point you're eight, ten years into your career and you love the Navy, but you're also really burnt out from it. Can you take a, an intermission, kind of Put a, put a hole in your career without killing your career, uh, and then start back up again in a couple of years. Um, so he offers a lot of different ideas um, to alleviate some of the administrative burden on the warfighting force, to uh, eliminate some of the, the burdensome time you know sucks that we have in the Navy, uh, and also some tweaks to paying people an appropriate amount that's commensurate with the amount of, not just responsibility, but also the amount of time that they have to give in those very demanding uh, department head or, uh, you know, XOCO kind of uh, command at sea tours. So it's a, it's a great piece by J.O. Uh, we got some wonderful uh, photos to go with it. Uh, Torso, thanks for writing it and uh, for, for having the guts to write it. Um, uh, and he also gives credit for, to a bunch of his uh, ship and squad squadron mates over the years who helped him think about how to uh, 
uh, you know, not just cite the problems that exist, but also come up with some ideas for how the Navy could fix it. Another great article in this issue is by uh, Admiral Paul Becker, um, retired. He talks about teamwork, tone, and tenacity. You know, there's a lot of mnemonics or, or sort of hooks around the leadership, you know, 15 steps to great leadership or the seven habits of productive people, or I know I've mangled whatever that real title is, but, you know, there's these self-help books and other biz, uh, you know, business-facing books that have things organized in this way. But this one's very tidy uh, in that it's just three things. Uh, what does Admiral Becker talk about in this one? So Admiral Becker was a career naval intelligence officer, uh, Naval Academy class of 83. He was my boss as the J-2 out at PACOM for the last year I was at PACOM. Uh, he came in. I had never worked for Admiral Becker. Um, he came in and he, he, um, he started his time as the J-2 and immediately gave everybody uh, what he called the gold standard and the three T's. So it was a brochure. It was this tri-fold tri brochure and inside it talked about teamwork, tone, tenacity, and also talked about his standards for excellence, the gold standard. And it, at first blush, and I'd never worked for him before, um, but at first blush, I thought it was hokey. I thought it was a bit, you know, kind of kitschy. Um, like, oh, okay, here's another guy who's got a slogan, right? <laughs> um, but he quickly made me and, and all of us uh, out at PACOM, at the JIOC and the PACOM J2, uh, converts to it because uh, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, it is tidy, right? It is, it's, it's not a list of 10 things that you're trying to remember. Oh my God, what's number seven? What's number eight? I can't remember, you know. Um, it's three, three things, teamwork, tone, tenacity. And, and Becker constantly drilled that into us in a very uh, positive way. He would tell us every single day when we met the standard, the gold standard, when we were exhibiting great teamwork, great tone, great tenacity, and when we weren't. And, and so you knew exactly, I, I really enjoyed working for him because I always knew what his standard was. I knew what he wanted from me and from my team. And I knew when we were on target and I also knew when we were off target. And usually he didn't even have to tell me. I knew that we were off target or we hadn't met the tone. We hadn't met the you know tenacity yet. We hadn't really gone after it as hard as we could. Um, but when we did, when my, when my team excelled, when we came up with a superb brief or a superb piece of intelligence that led to a decision, he was very quick to tell us, hey guys, that was, that was spot on. Your tone was perfect. Uh, your, your tenacity in going after not just the, the superficial answer, but the deep level understanding uh, on this issue was very important. Admiral Willard, uh, you know, liked this. He used it for this. He briefed here. Um, so I give, you know, huge credit to Admiral Becker for, for not just having a, um, a bumper sticker, um, but for actually living it and instilling it into his team. And he derived a lot of that from his time spent uh, in places like Afghanistan, in places like Bahrain, and, you know, doing the hard jobs. Uh, and, and then he would apply it over and over again. Um, it, it's a great piece. We got some, uh, you know, he, he points out that when he was growing up, uh, he remembers, you know, some people like Stockdale, who was a, a um, you know, just a, a shining example uh, for him, as were, you know, some movie actors like Henry Fonda and, uh, and Jimmy Stewart in, you know, Navy movies uh, back in the, you know, 40s and 50s that just gave an example of how to lead using those kinds of, uh, those tenets. You know, it's, it's all about teamwork. It's all about having the right tone. It's all about, you know, 
just being tenacious in everything that you do so that you get the right result. They don't make movies like they used to. Uh, another thing we want to sort of highlight, it's not just about the magazine. Uh, you know, as we talk about off times on the podcast, the USNI suite of products is a quadruple threat. And among those is Proceedings Today. And there's a really cool article in uh, the current, um, or online rather, by Captain Vince um, Augelli. Augelli, talking about um, how the Navy has great dress uniforms, but not so good working uniforms. Uh, it gets into the weeds pretty good there. Um, right. The, the title is that the, the Uniform Gods Must Be Crazy. And, you know, he points out that over the last uh, decade or so, the Navy um, has changed its... Uh, uh, it's working uniforms uh, so many times with the Navy working uniform. And then we dis- discovered that, oh, my goodness, it actually is not fireproof. And so you so can't wear you it, can't on, it on ship. You can't wear it on ship. <laughs> and so now there's a uh, there's a working, you know, essentially coverall kind of thing. But that is uh, uh, that's issued gear. It's not available for purchase in the uh, Navy Exchange uniform shop. And you only get two when you're on board ship. And so if the ship's laundry goes down, you're, you know, the, the, it, the Navy has not done a good job, right, of coming up with and standardizing Navy working uniforms. And so as a result, as I like to say, if you, you know, if you're on a joint base somewhere, as I was in Pearl Harbor, Hickam, uh, you know, Army guys, you could look at 10 Army guys on, on base, and all 10 of them were in the same uniform. Air Force guys, 10 Air Force guys, and all of them were in the same uniform. Uh, Marines, Marines would all be in the same uniform. You could get six Navy guys together, and they'd be in eight different uniforms, right? I mean, you know, some would be in coveralls, and some would be in dungarees, and some would be in the Navy uh, standard uniform, and some would be in the the working uniform, the the camis or the khakis or the whites or the, like, oh, my God, you can't, it's just awful, right? It's this... Um, you know, we do it to ourselves with so many different uniforms. So Augelli, you know, mentions at the end that in his basement he has a, uh, you know, a footlocker full of uh, wash khakis that he can no longer wear. He's got um, the Navy um, uh, athletic uniform, right, the the blue and gold um, that, that, you know, gets stained and has this really tight-fitting uh, neck that's uncomfortable to wear. You would never wear it. It's your PT gear, but you only wear it. Uh, for the twice a year that you have to take the PT test. Uh, and now he's going to have to put his Navy, um, his uh, his blueberries essentially into that uh, footlocker. And he's going to get, you know, the Navy working uniform type two is coming out, but it's not completely available. And it, it's crazy. So I, I think it's a, it's a great piece that points out that the Navy needs to do a better job with its working uniforms. And again, it's a reminder that uh, as a, uh, a person who's interested in the the topics of the sea service. Um, it's about more than just proceedings magazine these days. You, Absolutely. You, you've got to like us on Facebook. You've got to follow us on Twitter. Um, there's stuff happening on digital that is as important as what appears in proceedings uh, each and every month. So, so I'd, I'd like to point out one of the things that uh, for folks who don't know what what Ward's job is here as the outreach guy. One of the things he does is uh, he works with uh, the midshipmen, with the company officers, with the uh, the battalion officers, with the professors of naval science uh, around the country at NROTC units to get the student-sponsored program uh, working so that you know cadets and midshipmen 
become members of the Naval Institute, start getting proceedings early in their career rather than waiting until they're a lieutenant, lieutenant commander to, to become a member. Uh, and a, uh, an upcoming series of events that uh, the Naval Institute will be sponsoring with the Naval Academy, with the brigade, uh, is going to be called the Gunfighter Series. Uh, the first one's coming up here. When we don't be? have an exact date yet. Okay, but, so uh, we're yeah. but we're working on one working on, with yeah. uh, the Lone Survivor movie. Yep. Uh, the Navy SEAL who got uh, you know kind of um, uh, separated from his uh, platoon uh, in during combat operations. Marcus Luttrell uh, in Afghanistan, um, and we're going to have a showing of that movie. Over somewhere in the brigade uh, area, yeah, uh, in Mitcher Hall. In, in Mitcher Hall, um, we'll supp- supply the the movie and the popcorn and the the soda. And we've got three Navy SEALs who work at the Naval Academy who are going to start to, uh, you know, watch it alongside the mids, but also stop it at certain points to be able to talk about the you know key points and and lessons and what was Hollywood and what was reality. Yeah, right? absolutely. So it'll be like watching the movie with your cool friend. Uh, and we look to do this more and more often. Uh, just an example of uh, of sort of growing membership from the the entry level, um, and not through force of will, but through just demonstrating uh, relevance and how, how how the Naval Institute uh, does serve to make the sea services better. So we'd like to thank Sam for coming by today. Again, as I said, I hope he can come by more often. USNI News. If you do not. Uh, get that newsletter every morning. You really should. It's uh, it's an at-a-glance look for uh, what a sea service professional should know at the beginning of the day. Um, we'll see you here next week at the same time for the Facebook Live part. Check us out on uh, us9.org and SoundCloud uh, to hear the podcast. In, in some weeks, we'll have it on iTunes, so you can subscribe to us on iTunes. We're waiting till we get 10 shows, and this is episode number seven. So uh, very exciting there, too. Um, we'll look to have call-in guests, and more and more we're going to do uh, a lot of cool things here. So thanks for uh, for uh, listening to us. And, Bill, what do you got? One more thing? Oh, one more thing about the November issue of Proceedings. Uh, some of you may notice that it's a shinier, higher-quality cover. Uh, that cover is the first time we've used a UV coating uh, on the cover. A lot of people uh, keep their proceedings and uh, collect them for years and years. Uh, so the, the quality of it is a little bit better. Um, and one of the other things that a lot of people tend to complain about is that with the old covers, when you uh, tried to peel off the mailing level label, uh, it, would it, would rip, rip. it would rip yeah. the cover, right? And yeah. so with this new coating that we've gone to, uh, you'll be able to peel off your mailing level label and keep the, your proceedings intact, pristine, uh, put it in your, uh, your bookshelf and, uh, and keep it. Uh, it'll look much nicer 10, 20 years from now than uh, than the old covers did. So Fantastic. we're excited about that. A little bit more cost on our part, but we think it's uh, well worth it and makes it look, uh, look and feel better. Another value of membership. All right. See you next week, everybody. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.